0: Immersion and learning. Immersive learning, maybe not the way you think about it. We're going to talk with the master of immersion, Dr. Paul Zach, on this episode of the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Hello everybody. Hey Bob. Welcome. Hey guys. Welcome. Paul, welcome back. Thank you. Paul, Zach is here with us. He is in his uh, home office, which looks like he's in a cabin in the Northwoods of Wisconsin.
1: Right. You're in Montana.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm just painting (laughs) a picture for our listeners, and uh, we are delighted to have you on, Paul. So we were just reflecting before we started. You were actually one of our first guests. You might have been the first guest. Was he, Jake? I think he was. It's like in, in real time
2: right now. I'm trying to find it. But I'm pretty confident you are first guest we've ever had.
1: I was your guinea show. pig. You were just trying yes. out on me because <laughs> I don't matter. So yeah, you can beat me up.
2: Oh, no, actually, sorry. It was our second oh, guest. Oh, I'm number two. We were second <laughs> guest. Okay, sorry. Who was, who was the but, first guest then? Um, it was Lauren. Oh, Lauren! If you remember oh, that, Lauren Bell. that the office. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we still, so we still love Lauren. Uh, but Paul, you, you're you're our second and most recent guest. So. Yes, we're glad that you're here, um, Paul. Why don't Why don't you introduce yourself? Because I think I would do a poor job of capturing all your accolades.
1: Oh no, I'm just a dude off the street. Um, <laughs> uh, in in my, I wear a couple of hats. So, uh, cats. I'm a professor at Claremont Graduate University in Southern California. Uh, I run a big behavioral neuroscience lab there, and we're the founders of a software platform called Immersion Neuroscience that allows anybody to measure what the brain loves in real time using nothing but their smartwatch. Which is amazing.
0: And just a quick recap, I mean, everybody who you know kind of wants to hear the prelude to this should go back and listen to that episode. I guess it's number two. No, it's not number two, but it's, it's back in the first season. Um, I, I was introduced to Paul uh, several years ago, and uh, he did a demo for me, and he put a sensor on my arm and he showed me a commercial that was uh, uh, kind of a, a public service announcement, but was also an emotional video. And uh, Paul was watching the data output coming from the sensor. And then he played back the video and he told me exactly uh, how engaged and immersed I was at every moment in the video and was actually absolutely right, uh, which floored me. And the very first thing I thought of as a learning guy was i want that technology when we're doing pilots of our learning programs i want to be able to put that on people and know when they're engaged and when they're not engaged and what they you know what we need to fix to keep them engaged and so we that's how our business relationship started and we did that but we also have done a bunch of different experiments with with bringing sensors into learning experiences making shifts real time in a learning experience uh, based on what we've learned, um, Paul, maybe maybe give us a little bit of a rundown on immersion and how it all works, and kind of the science behind it.
1: Sure, thanks, Bob. Yeah, and um, you were the one who saw the, the the potential for training and education in this application. So, uh, you know, kudos to you for for seeing that. Um, yeah, so immersion came out of work uh, uh, that my lab did, funded originally by the Department of Defense in the U.S. and the U.S. intelligence community that tasked us with identifying signals in the brain that in combination would predict how people would behave after a message or an experience. And so we did uh, a ton of work from looking at uh, changes in neurochemicals in blood uh, to drug infusion studies to studying um, around 140 electrical signals at a very high frequency coming out of the, the brain and the peripheral nervous system and put these through a bunch of statistical sieves so we create experiences and saw who responded to those experiences who didn't. So watch a, a PSA, like you said, and then you could donate to charity or not. What's the difference right. between brain activity? Um, watch a video about uh, the environment. And we say, if you want to email your congressperson who does that. So our, our working presumption is that um, people are lazy and your brain's lazy. And if you have an experience and you're sufficiently motivated to do something then something important must have happened in your brain. So we did this over and over and over until we winnowed down these two core signals for a really unusual neurologic state that I've called immersion. So I'm using that as a technical term in neuroscience to denote a state in which people are attentive to the experience. And that experience is emotionally resonant for them. So they really care about it emotionally. And so this um, state is unusual because the attentional response is a, is a arousal response in the brain. I have to put energy into it where this emotional resonance, which is driven by the brain's release of oxytocin is kind of a, uh, kind of warm embrace, relaxing response. And so we have this kind of weird state where we're on, but we're like digging it and it feels good and I'm here and I'm really able to absorb the information. And now we have, uh, you know, a, a half a dozen, maybe 10, different organizations that regularly use immersion in the learning domain to measure the kind of content they create for both for their um, uh, own employees, but also uh, increasingly with engagements with clients. So happy to share lots of insights that we've gained from that uh, application of our technology.
3: So Paul, one thing that um, as I've followed your journey that's been interesting is initially as Bob was talking. The, the first iterations that we saw at least, you you pr- had to provide armbands and we had to have all sorts of computer stuff set up and people had to be in the same room physically, right? And, and so,
0: I'm sorry, right. I, I'm laughing because you know what, in my time hop the other day, Paul, it, it came down to the session that we did in Buenos Aires and I had taken a picture <laughs> of myself where I had oh. like 25 armbands all up and down my arm to calibrate right. them the night before. <laughs>
3: Well, I was going to say it was, a, you, know, like a, you know, a little bit like, you know, a tin hat and aluminum foil wrapped around on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, crazy,
2: crazy wires right, everywhere. Yeah, down, yeah. I remember the big box, Bob.
0: Yes. Oh, remember this yeah, big yeah, aluminum camera. case that you carry those yes. to the airport?
1: Yeah, this James Bond case. Yeah, which
0: I may or may not have smuggled out of the country of Argentina, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> no, let's <that's> not <laughs> talk. So
3: the journey went from there to, you know, where you had to be in a confined space to yeah. now anybody with a watch, like we could be doing right now, the the four of us on this call, you could be monitoring our uh, level of immersion. And to me, it, it like it opened up the entire world because now it's applicable not only when you're physically together, but also globally dispersed.
1: Which is increasingly what's happening, particularly with hybrid work and uh, and I think even, uh, as you guys, you know, move heavily into the kind of metaverse area, um, I think we have to have technologies that are so easy to use and so flexible, uh, that they can be used any place people are doing interesting things. And so Dana, that was a, the COVID thing. So we, you know, we almost, almost, you know, lost our shirts in COVID. Everyone canceled their subscriptions and we had planned to create the mobile app as version two and, uh, we had no, no customers and uh, you know, a teeny little bit of money in the bank, we're like, hey, let's use that money and make version two and make it mobile. And now we're on platform version three, uh, which has not only uh, the, the mobile app and much nicer graphics and all that, but now we actually have uh, uh, built a Bluetooth hub. So let's have all those wires. If people are in a room, we can just put this one little teeny small box and it'll just suck up all the signal in the room. So uh, we've we've really expanded on that. So you guys again were awesome to to use the kind of V1 of that. That was uh, honestly quite clunky. Uh, we're still learning a lot of things. I think. I mean, I think you guys learned some stuff from it. But uh, yeah. So I mean, again, we're, we 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 gained VC funding. We built a team, uh, and you you know, we use that funding to hopefully make a much better product. So um, I, I take no credit for that. These are smart technologists who know how to do this thing. Well, I'm glad that
0: you mentioned the metaverse there because I did want to point this out. I hinted at it in the, in the cold open. A, a lot of us in the industry are using the term immersive learning to talk about learning that happens in a VR headset. And first off, that that's not quite the immersion that we're talking about here. It's That's something completely different. Um, immersion is the neuroscience measure that you pioneered, Paul, w- w- which I describe as it's kind of a combination of how much are you really paying attention to what is going on in the moment and what is your emotional affect in the moment mm-hmm. do i still have that right
1: that's perfect Great. yep
0: yep so so we even at accenture are starting to not call vr learning immersive learning anymore we're calling it metaverse learning to be more specific and, and you know you can combine you can combine immersion neuroscience ideas with metaverse learning to make a really, really robust experience. We haven't even really started to experiment with that on our side.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, again, that's where the mobile comes in, as Dana said. And, you know, we can pull pull data from, uh, you know, uh, VR headsets. So we're, we're device agnostic, you know, this is all about software and um, inferring what the brain's doing from these very subtle changes in the peripheral nervous system, um, you know, that took forever to figure out. Uh, so, yeah, so immersion also became a kind of a very interesting word, you know, used heavily in the VR space and also even in the live space. And, you know, when we made up this word or sort of chose this word to describe this neurologic data stream, uh, you know, we didn't know it would be so popular. So I don't know if that's good or bad for us, but every, it's certainly on everyone's lips.
2: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier, like there's been a lot of learning that, of course, has happened since the beginning or at least those days that Bob was you know, smuggling things out of different countries. Hey, I didn't say smuggling.
0: (laughs) May or may not have.
2: But anyway, you've learned a lot. And like, I think what's also interesting, too, is like prior to really the last couple of years, it's been outside of the learning and development realm. So over this last couple of years, what have you been learning from the learning side regarding not just the technology, but really the science behind it? What are you learning from uh, some of the insights
1: yeah, we have over 50,000 brains on the site now. So we're at the point where, and the, you mentioned I have a new book out called Immersion, where we can actually kind of find those trends and, and derive general insights. So in the learning space, um, really it looks like there are three dimensions that have a substantial effect on how effectively that information, that information from the from the training gets in and stays in people's brains. So stays in means weeks later, if we assess people, there's a positive correlation between immersion in the training and information recall. So that that uh, correlation is around 0. 0.6, which is really strong. So if I can somehow craft this training so that it's immersive, neurologically immersive, uh, I, I'm much more likely to get an ROI on that training. So there's really three core dimensions that the data show are important, and uh, the, the I'll just name them and then talk about them: readiness, content, and delivery. So readiness is having the uh the learners um, have enough neural bandwidth to actually have an immersive experience right so um we developed as you guys know on the platform this measure of physiologic psychological safety so how comfortable am i around these individuals if i have low psychological safety i'm burning a lot of bandwidth to just not freak out you know for the next 20 minutes um, so that's the first thing is creating that environment. So think about when you see a movie at a movie theater, right? What do they do? They put some previews on. They're kind of preparing you. Then the lights come down. Oh, now we're really preparing you. We actually turn off all your screens, right? They're creating that the readiness to have this experience, um, which is a different experience than if you are um, by yourself, you know, watching this in your room with the lights on. And by the way, we, we've had a, a bunch of people using our tech showing that, uh, people learn better in groups than they do alone, uh, so that's also a, a maybe. It's obvious to you guys. You guys are pros in this space, but it certainly wasn't obvious to me. Um, so I think when we talk about asynchronous learning, you know, we've got to think a little more about that. So um, uh, item number two is content. Um, you know, the the way you structure the content uh, is going to be more immersive in smaller chunks. Um, and so um, I don't think you guys use this term, but um, like Bob Gerard said, you know, no one should be talking for more than 20 minutes without a change in what's happening because it's metabolically costly to be immersed in, in this material. And so, breaking that information down into maximum 20 minute chunks is much more immersive. And then, in the next 20 minutes, you know, do something different, do some something, some participatory learning, some table work, and then the next 20 minutes do a debrief. I you know, I think that the 20, 20, 20 is not a hard and fast rule, but it, it tells you that that change in the structure of the learning capabilities uh, is important to keep the brain immersed in this new kick in. OK, something new is going on. And again, that's where the group learning, I think, is valuable. Uh, and then, uh, Bob, I'm, I've stole this phrase from you many times uh, without attribution, but I'll now give you credit. Uh, Bob told me Maslow's hierarchy always wins. So uh, what that means is that the brain is very much like a muscle. It gets fatigued. These neurons will fatigue, and they're going to work less efficiently. Efficiently, so Bob said they're starting to build in longer breaks because you need that refreshment time. If I'm going to hit you really hard, twenty minutes, twenty minutes, twenty minutes, I got to give you some recovery time, just like at the gym. And the data we've got suggests that that recovery time could be as short as ten minutes. Um, That's fine. You can do a a kind of a brainwashing task if you want. You can have people do just a another task that's. That's moderately cognitively taxing, so they can just kind of do a reset. You can meditate. We can have some quiet time, chit chat, um, and so um, so that's how you how you structure the content. And the last is delivery. So if we were to speak in a monotone, it would be awful. We'd everyone go to sleep, right? So the way you deliver it matters. And as you guys both said, or, or all three of you said what we want to do is have people actually be engaged in this content to the extent they really care about it. That means I've got to transmit the information with some degree of emotion. I've got to be excited about it, right? I've got to have some uh, interesting delivery and there are ways to rig that system. So if I am asked to give an hour talk, I do 20 minute chunks or less and I intersperse that with videos, with a funny cartoon, with, Uh, um, question from the audience in the middle, right? Change it up. Talking for 60 minutes is just uh, bad. Um, For delivery, always lead with a story. Always, 100% of the time. Start me out with a story. Get me to give a crap about what (laughs) you're going to be training me on, right? And that story should have human scale. It should have a crisis. It should have real emotions. Uh, It should be authentic, if possible. It could be a fictional story. It could be a conglomeration of different people or different clients uh, that you've worked with. But start with that story. Uh, props. Yes. Right. Use props. I know Bob, we spend a lot of time together. You love props. I know that. <laughs> um, I used to teach a graduate um, course in probability theory. So this is kind of a theorem proof course, but I went to Vegas and I bought these oversized cards and I bought the you know, cheesy plastic roulette wheel. And I would tell a story before we did the theorems and proofs, I tell a story about the mat- mathematician who developed this particular technique. We are learning what he or she was, was working on, why they developed this, gave examples from gambling, which are always easy for probability. Um, so really it's it's that those three things, readiness, which the trainer you know, can affect uh, to degree. The second is how you structure the content. And the third is how you deliver it. And I think once we think of those three dimensions, we can begin to going kind to of optimize this and hopefully escape the tyranny of the 60-minute clock.
0: I feel like we could have about eight episodes and unpack everything in that last five yeah, minutes, I was, was I was thinking how much that <laughs> overlaps with our principles of durable learning. I mean,
3: you just validated uh, a lot of the work that we've done internally. Paul, this might be a little bit too technical, and I don't want you to share any of your secret sauce, but I'm curious, you know, I've, I'm wearing an Apple Watch. How in the world can you tell what's going on in my brain through my Apple Watch?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Dana. Um, so uh, I want whenever I have this discussion, I want to do a, a thank you to the U.S. taxpayers <laughs> who uh, funded uh, millions yep. of dollars with their energy in our lab. <laughs> yeah, all you guys help pay for it um, because we were um, uh, creating a test bed so that soldiers can more effectively communicate and influence um, both our our partners. Uh, you know, particularly in the war on terror. And, and also um, potential um, enemies. Uh, so if you, uh, some of you have seen the book, it starts with me getting my my butt chewed out by a um, unnamed uh, gentleman who had just come back from Afghanistan uh, trying to get information from terrorists. And the question is, how how do you do that effectively, right? There's a, a lot of different approaches, um, none of which you know work all the time. And that was the kind of the start of this journey. Um, so because we had so much money, um, we were able to measure uh, electrical signals in the brain at very high frequency up to a thousand times a second from the the brain itself using high density eeg and from the peripheral nervous system we did that because we were just looking for any combination of signals that would give us high predictive accuracy for how people would respond observably respond um, after we give them a message Um, and so we put these through a statistical sieve Uh, over many, many experiments. And what we found, Dana, was that the the cranial nerves, I think this is the output file of the brain, uh, meets that statistical consistency criterion. So if I measure the level of the brain, uh, most brain neurons are multipurpose. They're not dedicated to a particular function. And so they fail to consistently activate across a range of different kinds of messages or experiences. But this network effect, this output file from the cranial nerves, Uh, is a really consistent predictor once i know to look for this attentional response and this oxytocin driven emotional resonance so both those have downstream effects because the brain is embodied uh, and and those nerves pass through your heart and Mm -hmm. so they have these very subtle like third and fourth order changes on the rhythms of the heart Um, and so those subtle changes are found in little pieces of the published literature but they've never been put together and then lastly, sorry, you asked a good question. I'm going to answer it as well as I can. <laughs> lastly, we took these, these core signals for attention and for emotional resonance, and we mathematically convolved them in kind of complex ways to maximize the predictive accuracy of the platform. So that's a lot of words. let me give you a much more concrete 90-second uh, example, if I may. Yes. So we published a paper last week. Uh, in which we took a vulnerable population. These are uh, senior citizens living in a retirement home who are at uh, increased risk of depression and yet are much less likely to be able to report their feeling states. In other words, they won't tell you they're feeling depressed. Um, We did one-second frequency measurements, 10 hours a day for three weeks for, um, I don't know, a couple dozen of these residents. And then every morning we said, yesterday, tell us about your mood. Rank it. Tell us about your energy levels. And we're able to use, uh, aggregate that data to hourly data and predict with 98% accuracy when people have a mood trough or an energy trough. Wow. Right? Why is that? Because we're capturing the value that the brain assigns to social experiences. So we know if social experiences decline enough that people become depressed. This is what it means to be a social creature. We need the other humans around us. And there are substitutes. I can get substitutes by, you know, 2D stuff like we're doing right now. Uh, dogs are substitutes. Um, but uh, uh, that and our measure of, of uh, psychological safety together, were highly predictive. So whatever neurologic immersion is, it seems to capture that underlying connection we have to an experience with some social content.
3: And so that comes, that data from my watch is largely my heart rate.
1: Yeah, we're feeding in heart rate, but we're applying all these algorithms to capture that that oh, cranial okay. nerve activity. All right. So that's the sort of third and fourth order effects. So this is like, uh, you know, kurtosis and variance, and you know all these kind of weird things that your heart is doing. Um, that again, those pieces are 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 in the published literature here and there. And we, you know, uh, this is standing on the shoulders of giants. And you know, we just obviously we tested all this stuff, but we we you know, had hypotheses. We stole this stuff from existing little piece of the literature is that enough information <laughs> i can go deeper yeah that's, that's that's good
3: and i i noticed you didn't say cats in your uh, your notion of companions we've got a couple of cats here and i understand that they go their own way and they just kind of yeah you don't, you
1: don't get an oxytocin yeah. boost from your cats well you do a little bit so well, when they you, purr. You guys...
3: unless they want unless they want to give unless you one want. so
1: if you're bored you can google my name and bbc cats and dogs we actually were commissioned by the BC, bbc to run a experiment to see if cats or dogs are better pets we measured their oxytocin before and after they played with their humans so i'll leave you to guess uh, what the results are but it's a very cute little uh, video it's it's published online that's so
0: funny we were just we we have two cats and one is a sweetheart and when you pet her she purrs like a motorboat and the other one is a little obnoxious cat and if you pet him he doesn't purr at all and it, 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 it I, I said to him in front of my wife, I'm really talking to her last week, you know, if you just purred, you'd be way more likable. And I think there's <laughs> some connection there. Yeah.
1: But I think as social creatures, we want to connect. So where I right. live, we have wild burrows and they were in, a. I was walking to the lock last night and they were in this park because they're looking for fresh food, you know, and I came back an hour later, walked up home and brought some carrots and I hung out with these wild burrows and fed them carrots and they let me stroke them. And it's just a weird thing. And I was thinking, like, is that a good use of my time? What's what's my underlying pathology that I want to feed the wild burrows and and hang out with them? But well, uh, don't, don't tell get... me that you put a an Apple Watch on them. <laughs> I have done <to, laughs> I have done it with my dog, so we can talk about that. Have you really? <laughs> that's that's the billion dollar business right there is measuring what makes your dog happy. Well, in California, that would be a big market.
0: We we definitely <laughs> that's, that's, treat yeah. our dogs differently than I think anywhere else in the world. So that's great. Uh, Paul, you went through w- when you were giving your your amazing explanation of everything. A few different real practical tips that some of our learning pr- practitioners can take away of leading with story, making things engaging, giving frequent breaks. Are are there any others that you can think of? Maybe things that you know have come out of of more recent research. I think this is really edutainment,
1: um, and so some of the things that we've seen that are effective in the entertainment space or create as much as possible multi-sensory hooks for the information you're putting in. So I know you guys have done this before. So physically making something for that table work, um, having a particular uh, scent, having a think about lighting. Uh, music has a big effect on, on immersion. I don't know if that's ever been used in the learning space, but I think it's quite interesting where we've had um, uh, movie studios uh, down the street from you, Bob, that have a measured immersion as they put different music uh, against a movie scene. And Mm -hmm. the immersion will vary by 50%, 60% sometimes. It it matters. So I'm just wondering if it would be interesting um, to put music behind some of that learning. And then lastly, I think one of the really cool things that uh, some people in the learning space have done is to gamify the learning process by identifying super fans for a particular session and then, giving them a badge, whether that's virtual or in person, that says you know ask me about cost accounting or whatever whatever that session was on, and then you know using these this uh objective measure of people who just absorb it, they love this session so much, and they're leverage points they're the super fans, so you know have people um reinforce have those learners who are super fans reinforce the core material so i don't know if anybody has done any of this stuff now we're talking about the wild so that's the reason you have me on right you want the wild crazy ideas from the the weirdo (laughs) scientist guy but are any of those would any of those resonate with you all definitely i i think
0: that idea of finding the people who can then be your evangelists uh -hmm. we I don't know, maybe kind of by accident, but just over the last year, as we created kind of a grassroots effort there of what we call the VR game changers. So these were people who were very excited and they were kind of the super participants in our project. And we tapped into them and pulled them together as a community. And now that's a real force to be reckoned with. And so they are not only learning more themselves and diving in deeper than anything we could potentially have taught them. They then turn around and bring the rest of their colleagues through it and they do act as evangelists. So, um, that, hmm. that is a, a great strategy to find those people who are really immersed and, and play off of that. And then, yeah, with music is a, music is a funny one. We, we were playing with music about 20 years ago or so. Um, I spent a few weeks, not week not full weeks, but a few weeks of calendar time um, basically pulling together the soundtrack for a week-long learning program and I had designed it so that the music would get people to the energy level that we wanted to, them to be at at certain points during the week. so, you know, it was a certain amount of hype type music at the very beginning that peaked at the end of the opening session. And then we'd have music that would be a little bit more relaxing as they eased into the rest of the, the week. And then it would gradually build and build and build until it hit more of a crescendo at the end. And it was interesting. Like I couldn't say that we had scientific data to prove the effectiveness of that, but it seemed to be working. Uh, the challenge that we had with it was, Nobody believed that it was working. And so unless somebody who was very passionate about this idea was there in the room at all times, uh, people would just swap out our music with their own music and, you know, kind of the experiment got lost, but now we have the ability to control that experience a little bit more when we're talking about, about, uh, metaverse learning and you know, how can we use other factors and sensors and art forms to pull people in and keep them engaged.
2: Well, I think if if we even go outside of the in-person environment and go to more of like a digital simulation or a, I don't know, what's a a couple other things, but like simulations, game-based designs, like what could you do to enhance like the beginning to showcase like this is a mystery, this is a, like this major event happened through the story, right? And then you add music, you you start with the story and then that feeds into like what they're going to start to do right um so there's i think there's a whole bunch of opportunities to utilize music as well as even the storytelling mechanism as well as the story ta- like the storytelling arc um on things that are not just in person yeah. that can keep you engaged as well as to i mean again that's like i, I just keep thinking of game design how much in game right. design they utilize that and you're in this serious moment where stormtrooper is going to get you or something like that and you're like Ugh, and the music is intense right and that's that's the level that i think we can add into just on music but i think that's where the storytelling comes into yep
3: jake i was thinking of i was thinking of escape rooms right they do that too they build a story and you go in and the time the the timer is set and you got 90 minutes to save the world the
2: build up of the music mm-hmm. yeah, towards right. when they know the music or sorry when the timing is ending the buildup of the music it starts to get intensified your heart starts pounding and you know, data pulls out the win for solving (laughs) the last puzzle. Can I I recommend the
1: the killer app for training, which is you mentioned game design just made me think of this. We have two game companies that are now using the immersion API to actually guide people in real time through a game. So you can modulate that kind of stress response as well as the immersion response. And so I think it's like, um, Little saying for the stock market, right? Let your winners run and cut your losers fast. So if this is a crappy experience that then will pivot you into something else. But if you're really immersed, let them stay in there, let, you know, keep running with that thing. Um, so I, I just think this would be so interesting yeah. for training, particularly we're in the digital metaverse learning where, mm-hmm. you know, it's customization at scale, right? I'm getting data from you and I'm guiding you. Um, so, the, so DARPA, who is one of our early funders, uh, had a program a thousand years ago that got shut down I should say, shut down. Um, called AugCog. Those are air
2: quotes there for That's those right. that yeah. could see. That's right. It. Just I just made it for down. you guys. <laughs> uh, it, it may have
1: existed. I, I it to... anyway. It's called AugCog, which is for Augmented Cognition, and the idea was to use uh, neurologic data to modulate how much information things like uh, you know um, uh, intelligence analysts could could acquire. So uh, you know the the problem for people working intelligence is. That oftentimes it's just the same thing over and over and over, and you get such an erode uh, you know condition that you miss the anomaly. This happens to to really experience airline pri- pilots sometimes too. they're so used they've they've got tens of thousands of hours in this airplane, and then when there's an anomaly, they just don't focus on it because it's like oh, I've heard bells go up bazillion times and then they crash the plane so anyway this this the this idea was to to modulate how much information flow. Uh, people receive so they could kind of optimally process it. So I just wondered, it just seems like that would be so awesome in the in the you know mm-hmm. learning space. Well, I feel like we could go on for hours
0: and I'm looking at the clock on the studio wall and we're already way over time. So Paul, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us again. How can people get a hold of your new book?
1: Uh, they can just find it on Amazon. It's called Immersion, The Science of the Extraordinary and the Source of Happiness. And uh, I think some dear friends who may be online here uh, wrote some nice things about it. And you can find me at getimmersion.com. Happy to uh, answer any questions. My email's on there. You can just ping me. That would be great.
0: Paul, thanks for joining us again today. It was great seeing
1: you. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, guys. Love you, guys. You're wonderful. (laughs) You too.
0: (laughs) And thanks to all of our listeners. We're glad you could join us as well. And so we will see you on our next episode of The Learning Geeks, which will be out to you sometime very, very soon. So until then, bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. See ya. What was that, Bob? <laughs> Thank you. See ya.
1: He <laughs> was so happy to get that. What's wrong?
0: Oh, my gosh. Take care. <laughs> Can we do that again? <laughs> Goodbye, everybody.